um, what Job learned about God, what the key things were that he learned about God through his experience this morning. But I want to read to you uh, uh, the whole of chapter 39. We're not actually going to have a chance to look at it in, uh, again, really, apart from a couple of verses. But it is such beautiful poetry, and it gives us such a vivid um, depiction of God's relationship with his creation. I didn't think we could miss out on it totally in our time together. God's asking Job a whole series of questions to try to teach Job some lessons. Look at what he says. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wilds. They leave and do not return. Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied his ropes? I gave, I gave him the wasteland as his home, the salt flats as his habitat. He laughs at the commotion in the town. He does not hear a driver's shout. He ranges the hills for his pasture and searches for any green thing. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will he stay by your manger at night? Can you hold him to the furrow with a harness? Will he till the valleys behind you? Will you rely on him for his great strength? Will you leave your heavy work to him? Can you trust him to bring in your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, but they cannot compare with the pinions and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labor was in vain, for God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. Do you give the horse his strength or clothe his, clothe his neck with a flowing mane? Do you make him leap like a locust, striking terror with his proud snorting? The po he pours fiercely, rejoicing in his strength and charges into the fray. He laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. He does not shy away from the sword. The quiver rattles against his side along with the flashing spear and lance. In frenzied excitement, he eats up the ground. He cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds. At the blast of the trumpet, he snorts. Aha! He catches the scent of battle from afar, the shout of commanders and the battle cry. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread his wings towards the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build his nest on high? He dwells on a cliff and stays there at night. A rocky crag is his stronghold. From there he seeks out his food, his eyes detected from afar. His young ones feast on blood, and where the slain are, there he is. See, God is saying that all this beautiful variety of creation that he's made, Job barely knows about. But God knows about each of them perfectly. We'll learn more about that in a minute. Let's pray.
Lord God, our loving Heavenly Father, we believe that you love us. Those of us here who are Christians, we have learned it and we have come to believe it. And yet, Lord, so often that belief is very, very fragile. So often, like Joe, we find ourselves plunged into misery. Lord, we pray this morning that you would give us a clearer grasp of who you are, a clearer understanding of our relationship to you, a clearer appreciation of the work of Jesus Christ, and that as all these things work together, Lord, that we would be drawn into a personal relationship with you which is far deeper, far more profound. And Lord, far more enduring. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If anyone is not disturbed by the problem of pain, it's for one of two reasons. Either because of hardening of the heart or softening of the brain. Some ways those words of um, Studdart Kennedy bring, bring us to the heart of the message of Job. The reality of pain, especially of, of, of innocent suffering, stands as a horror for all people, doesn't it? Especially for Christians who claim to believe in an all-powerful and all-loving God. You know, those who are not troubled by such things have either never bothered to, uh, to think about them, they're soft-brained, or they've never engaged sympathetically with those who suffer, they're hard-hearted. If you've been here as we've studied uh, the book of, of Job, you, you will see how actually the book has encouraged us precisely to be troubled by innocent suffering. We saw at the beginning how, how Job's described as a model believer. He actually suffers precisely because he is good. God wants to prove Job's nobility of character to Satan. But in so doing, Job suffers a terrible price. He loses his wealth, he loses his children, he loses his health. And you remember how, how were Job's friends, they were both hard-hearted and soft-brained, weren't they? They sought to give simple answers to Job's problem and showed their, uh, 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 that they had a, their own form of spongy form encephalopathy. And then, they, uh, then they sought, in fact, to minimize uh, 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 Job's real suffering and became more and more concerned about their own damaged reputation. Showed that they had sclerotic hearts. And we saw, on the other hand, that Job himself struggled and wrestled and agonized over his fate. He refused to give up on God. He, he refused as well to deny that his fate was unjust. And finally, we saw at the end of the last time that we were looking at Job, how God actually did speak to him. Not to condemn him. Job needed correction but he did not need condemnation. Job's speech had been intemperate at times, but overall, we saw, God approved of Job. 
God's final verdict on Job was, my servant has spoken well of me. Well, that's how far we've got so far. Today, though, we're actually going to start to look at what um, perhaps you've been waiting for for several weeks, some of the answers that God does start to give to Job. And they're they're not actually answers in the sense of uh, simplistic explanations. No, simplistic answers come from Job's Job's hard-hearted, soft-brained friends, don't they? But they are answers, nonetheless, that God gives to Job. Actually, they are answers that satisfy Job. So they should satisfy us. Well, we're going to look, first of all, then, at uh, two answers that uh, God himself gives to Job. They're at the end of the book. Then we're actually going to look back and spot something that we hadn't picked up till now, that Job himself seems to have a deep intuition about a still more profound answer that he in his lifetime never actually saw, but which afterwards, uh, uh, from our perspective, becomes very clear. So let's look at God's two specific answers, first of all, before we go on to look at Job's intuitions. God's first answer is to reveal himself. Job has been challenging God for chapter after chapter to give an explanation of the way that he conducts himself in the world. And finally, God actually reveals himself to Job and with with heavy irony, he starts to give an answer of sorts. But he, what he, the answer he gives is simply to reveal his absolutely unchallengeableness. The fact that he is so great, so wonderful, so omnipotent and all-powerful, so uh, perfect and strong in his creative power. How can Job question him? in the way that he has been doing. Look at chapter 38. We've seen chapter 39. Let's look at some of the verses in 38. 4 to 7, for instance. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Or verse 19. What's the way to the abode of light? Where does darkness reside? Can you take them from their pl- to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You've lived so many years, says with irony. Verse 31. Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Mankind uh, for millennia now, since Job's time, have been trying to understand all these things. And advances have been made, you know, but every great scientist says that the more they discover, the more they sense there is to discover. 
Now, God is utterly beyond our understanding in one sense. And his creation shows us that. But actually, infinitely powerful though God is, he also shows a real intimate care for his creation. Did you notice that in chapter 39? Let me read the first eight verses to you. Or just a few of them anyway. Do you know where the mountain goats give birth? You see, he does. That's what he's trying to say. I know these things. Do you know where the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her form? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Who let the wild donkey go free, he says in verse 5. Who untied his ropes? I gave him the wasteland as his home. He laughs at the commotion in the town. God has a personal, intimate care for every single creature in this world. He watches over them. It's actually important to understand exactly what God is saying here, because uh, this, this great speech has, uh, has received some false uh, interpretations. Some people have uh, tried to say that what, what, what God is trying to say in these chapters is that if only uh, Job could understand it, there is nothing really painful about the way that uh, God works this world out. It's the limitation of our understanding from where we get pain. In uh, 1924, Thornton Wilder wrote a novel called The Bridge of San Luis Rey. Uh, he uh, described in that uh, novel how a rope bridge breaks and five people are killed, watched by a young Catholic priest. And as that priest investigates the lives of the victims, he finds that each one of them had recently resolved a particular situation in their life. Perhaps, reasons the priest, God was working this out perfectly. They had all come to an appropriate point where they were ready to die. Well, I have to say, that, that, that's far too a simplistic view of life and not, I think, what God is trying to say here. I mean, a novelist can manipulate the facts of a story but you will look in vain to find that every untimely death is actually perfect. That there is real pain, real innocent suffering in this world. And God is not trying to deny that in these chapters. Another interpretation of this passage goes to the other extreme. It suggests that actually what God is saying is, uh, is something like this. He's saying, if you only knew how complex the world is, then you would realize that it's utterly impossible for me to get everything right. One Jewish commentator says, I take these lines to mean, if you think it's so easy to keep the world straight and true, to keep unfair things from happening to people, you try it. Now, God's not saying that either. God's not describing himself here as a, as a sort of helpless juggler trying to keep all the balls in the air and, of course, occasionally dropping some. No, he's describing himself as an effortless, supreme sovereign who does control everything. Now, what God is doing in these chapters 
is he is simply showing God how great uh, Job how great he is. It's quite specifically actually not giving Job a full explanation. You know, even after God's reply to Job, we actually know more about why Job suffered than uh, Job himself does, don't we? We were told that at the beginning. God tells Job uh, nothing about his conversation with Satan. He tells him nothing about his inner motivations to prove Job's greatness. He tells him nothing about the limits that he has set on Job's suffering. We've been told that, but Job hasn't. Even the insights of chapters 1 and 2, you see, are not adequate of themselves. They themselves just beg greater questions. So what God does is he simply reveals himself. And he says, catch a glimpse of how wonderful I am and then trust me. In, in, the, in the end, that is the ultimate thing that God asks us to do. He tells us something about these mysteries. He lets us see a little bit about what he's doing. But in the end, he says, you cannot know everything, but trust me. I who care for the donkeys on the mountainside, I who care for the pregnant for uh, the pregnant doe will care for you. Trust me. Hence Job says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. There is no way that we can uh, maintain a relationship with God in this world if we are not prepared to trust him for things that this side of eternity we will never understand. That's the first thing that God does then. He just shows Job who he is. The second thing that uh, God does is, uh, has confused many people, happens right at the end of the book. There... God shows Job that there is ultimate justice. Very end of the story, Job receives more blessing than he had before. Chapter 42, verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven daughter, sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Kezia, the third Keren Hapuk. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. Their father granted them an inheritance along with their sons. There's a bit of equality for you. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so he died old and full of years. Actually, many people feel that that's a very, very dissatisfying end to the book. Because for 41 and a half chapters, there has been a real and painful interaction with uh, Job's innocent suffering. 
with the fact that life is not always fair, with the fact that there are mysteries that we will never fathom. And then God seems to almost blow it by sort of tidying it up in Job's case, which would be fine if he did it in every case, but he doesn't, does he? I mean, Job has, has done well at the end of his life, but people die unjustly, don't they? People suffer unjustly all of their lives. Now, this doesn't feel in many ways like an adequate answer. It feels like a cop-out. I think the key to, to uh, understanding this is to understand the perspective that the writer of Job had. Before Jesus came, they did not have a very clear idea of eternal life. A few writers glimpsed it. Actually, Job does at one point. We'll see that in a moment. But it wasn't clearly in their vision. So the only way that God could, could show Job and show us that there is justice in the end is by rewarding Job in that, in that way. But it is not a full and final answer. It is just a little foretaste of something that awaits the New Testament before it comes fully into view, that there is eternal life, that God does do all things well, that there is no person who in eternity will say, I have been treated unjustly by God. God reveals to Job, within the world that he understands, his justice. But still this book leaves us unsatisfied. Still, this book longs for something bigger, longs for eternal life. Well, those are the answers, and uh, uh, I think you'll agree, partial answers at best that God gives to Job. He reveals himself, and he says, trust me. He reveals a little bit of his justice, but still leaves some very, very big questions. Funnily enough, though, it is Job himself who starts to see even deeper answers than that. I want us to spend some time looking at Job's intuitions that, that float up to the surface every so often in the midst of his agonizing and uh, uh, praying. Intuitions that uh, uh, finally will uh, be revealed in the New Testament as first glimpses of something very, very special. So let's look through Job's speeches and start to see his intuitions then. Chapter 9, first of all, verses 33 to 35 on page 516 in the Church Bibles. In many ways, this is a cry of longing. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. Job is longing for a mediator, someone to mediate between him and God. He longs for a go-between. He longs for someone who is sufficiently 
familiar both with his personal predicament of human suffering and with God. So that this person, as uh, as Job says here, could lay his hand upon both of them. That would make such a difference for Job. And of course, there is no such person in Job's life. God is far too distant for any mediator to stretch between the two of them. The second uh, uh, intuition is found in chapter 16, verses 19 to 21. Chapter 16, 19 to 21. It's on page 522. Here Job seems to have actually seen something. Even now my witness is in heaven... My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God, on behalf of a man, he pleads with God, as a man pleads for his friend. Actually, the details of these verses are are a bit obscure. If you look at the footnote for um, verse 20, you'll see that. But 19, verse 19, is very clear. Somehow, in the midst of his dis- Job has a vision of someone in heaven, in the presence of God, appealing for him in fa- before the face of God. Someone like a man doing that. And then the curtain comes down again and he's lost the vision. And he's uh, agonising again. Until chapter 19, verse uh, 23 when we see again something that Job has now seen, which is so profound, so important to him, that that he uh, surrounds this uh, exclamation of confidence with the most extraordinary words. Verse 23, Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead, or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Now again, as in many places in the book of Job, there are some problems in translating these verses perfectly, but the overall thrust of these verses is very clear. Job is absolutely confident of a living redeemer. Almost certainly he means God himself who will stand upon the earth. You see, a redeemer was someone who paid a price to set a slave free. And for a moment, Job is absolutely confident that there is such a redeemer for him that he will be free, that someone, in fact God perhaps, will pay a price that sets him free. More than that, 
in this passage, he not only has confidence in redemption, he seems to have confidence of resurrection life beyond the grave. He, he uh, wants these words to be written with absolute confidence so that they last after he has died, engraved on a rock forever. They will stand as a monument to this confidence that he has, which is beyond death. And he uses this first-person pronoun repeatedly to affirm that it's him, himself, after his death, who will see God. I will see God, he says. I myself, and not another. There is no resolution to these statements. Job is left still longing for a mediator, someone to stand between him and God, longing for an intercessor, someone to be in the presence of God, pleading his case as a man. He longs for this Redeemer whom he has seen, who will pay a price to set him free. He longs for this eternal life, that after his skin is destroyed, he himself will see God. You know your New Testament. You know that Job was longing for Jesus. Job had had visions here precisely of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is the mediator whom Job longed for. He is the, is the one who can lay his hands upon both God and man because he is God-made man. He is God in the flesh. He knows God. He existed with God for an eternity before time began. And yet he uniquely knows too what it means to be human, what it means to suffer, what it means to die even. So Jesus stands as a mediator. God is no longer impossibly distant. God the Son suffers with us. It's because of that, you see, that, uh, that, the, that uh, these words in Hebrews chapter 2 are so, so precious. Imagine what Job could have thought if he had read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. In bringing many sons to glory... It is fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Can you imagine Job's excitement of that? The Apostle Paul says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Suddenly, in Jesus, that gulf that Job felt was so infinite and so wide between himself and God has been shrunk to the arm span of a single person, Jesus Christ. He is a mediator. More than that, Jesus is the Redeemer whom, Jesus, whom Job looked forward to. Jesus said at one time, didn't he, the Son of Man has come to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom was the price that a Redeemer paid. The price that Jesus would pay was his life. The freedom 
that Jesus would buy by the sacrifice of his life is the freedom that Job longed for, the freedom of forgiveness of sins, the freedom of assurance of a relationship with God, the freedom of an eternity in the presence of God, the resurrected freedom beyond the grave. You know, the book of Job ends with uh, uh, some very final words, and so he died. But you see, the Gospels end with a very strong, different affirmation. He is risen. That resurrection life that Job longed for has become the, 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 the full experience of the Christian community. More than that, Jesus is not only risen, now he is in heaven interceding for us. He is that intercessor whom Job longed for. That's how the Apostle Paul describes him in Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 34. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The best answer that this world has to Job's questions is actually not found in the forms of words at all. It's found in the form of a person, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God-made man. Jesus Christ reduces that gulf between us and God and reassures us that God too knows our suffering personally through his Son. Jesus Christ assures us that there is nothing now that can stop us from an eternity of bliss because he died and rose again. Jesus Christ now intercedes on our behalf as one who knows us and has experienced with us the trials of this world. All that Job longed for has become reality in Jesus. Let me finish by reading you a story that uh, I've read before, but it bears rereading. It's called The Long Silence. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Far across the plain there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint for the evil and suffering he permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most, a Jew, a Negro, a Persian person from Hiroshima, 
a horribly deformed arthritic at the melidomide child. In the center of the plane, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could qualify to be their judge, he had to endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be condemned to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him work to do that is so hard that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured, they said. At the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. When the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly, all knew that God had served his sentence. Let's pray. Maybe that you have some particular suffering, perhaps of your own, or someone that you know. Something that has caused you to uh, want to shout at God like Job. Maybe it's time just to expose that before God. Be honest about it. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we cannot expect this side of eternity for there to be no suffering. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to hang on to such answers as you do give because they are so profoundly precious. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that in him, Lord, you are no longer distant. You are no longer dispassionate. You are no longer unaffected. And we are no longer without hope. Please, Lord, we pray, help us to dwell deeply on the fuller insight that we have of greater value than the visions that Job had. Help us to cling to them with such tenacity and such joy that no longer 
are our lives characterized by despair, but by joy. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.